I want to get going. It's 9.30. I want to get started right away because we have a lot that, that I'd like to cover. We won't get it all done today, but we will get through it in the next few weeks. So um, I want to get started. I appreciate you being here on time, ready to go. And uh, so I, if you don't mind, I'd like to begin with a word of prayer. Um, just encourage you, too, to be praying um, for Scott Hall. Heard from Christina this morning. Um, I don't know if several in our church have gone through the knee surgery thing, and, and, and you have family members who have gone through it. Um, this is day two after that, and this is the rough day, <laughs> and uh, he had a rough night, so be praying for Scott. So um, let's begin with a word of prayer this morning. Father, we thank you so much that we can meet this morning, that we can open your word, that as we do that this morning, we don't do it blindly, we don't do this without any help. We have the Spirit of God who indwells us, who you have promised us and told us that will guide us into truth. And so this morning as we open your word, we, we do so confident not in our ability, not in our, our understanding, but confident in the Spirit, confident in the truth of your word, and confident in its power. And so this morning we, we rely on that we rest in that, and we pray for our friend Scott this morning that you would strengthen his body, that you would, would relieve the pain that he's feeling, that you would, would just raise him up, pray for a good week of healing for him. Lord, we love you this morning, and I pray that this time together would be profitable. In Jesus' name, amen. So, you got an email from me, and, and I'm glad you're here this morning. I'm glad that you, you, you made it a point to be here. Um, the things that we're going to talk about this week, next week, and possibly two weeks from now, depending on how far we get, are of vital importance. They're of vital importance. And the purpose for doing this is, honestly, to publicly and collectively address questions and doctrinal issues that have popped up over the past months within our church family. If you're here this morning, you're like, I didn't know there was anything going on. You ought to thank God. Honestly, you ought to thank God. If you are here this morning and you know what's been going on, and you've been like, PD, I've been waiting for you to say something, well, guess what? The elders are now prepared to say something. And so... I'm just going to be honest with you, and, and I'll start out by letting you know this. These sessions are going to be recorded. The audio is going to be recorded. We're going to make them available on the Podbean for you to go back and go through. Um, I, you know me well. Once I get going, I get going, and I tend to fly. And I hope that you brought paper and a pen and you're ready to take notes. Um, I thought about putting together handouts for you, and then I thought, no, I'm not going to spoon feed you. You're gonna, you need to work through this. You need to take your own notes. You need to do this on your own as I help you. But I'm going to be honest with you. The issues that have been brought up have brought major hurt and division to the unity of our church. And that concerns me. That concerns the elders. These issues are important, but these issues quite honestly, are not issues deep enough for us to be fighting about. And so that's what grieves my heart. But they are associated with our salvation. And would you agree with me that anything that deals with our salvation is of vital importance? 
And so we want to be clear on this. We want to be, we want to, we want to be very careful about how we speak. We want to be careful about the words we use. And I, I want you to be careful listeners. But more important than that, I want you to have an open heart to, that, that you would not listen to what I have to say, but what to God's word has to say. So my plan is to teach. I'll give you opportunities to interact at various times with what has been taught. If at the end of this whole thing, we get to the end of this, I didn't answer a question that you want answered, please ask the question, okay? Please ask the question, okay? But for the sake of orderliness, I'm going to try and teach. When we get to a good place to break, I'll ask if there are any questions. Let's try to keep our questions to the material that we've covered, okay? So, so that we can kind of keep this orderly, okay? So... One thing I want to make sure is, is that we all understand what the gospel is at the very beginning of this. We went through this about a year ago or so, and I thought we had made this very clear when we went through this about a year ago when we combined our ABFs, but let's make sure we understand what the gospel is. And to do that, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul clearly gives us what the gospel is. 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news, the evangel, which I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. And, and here he's talking about the, the different ways that the gospel, the gospel has been proclaimed, and it, it's been preached, you've received it, you've internalized it, you, you're, you're standing in it, and he says you're being saved by it, and don't, don't be, don't be you know, thrown off by that. If, if, we, if we can't save ourselves, which I think we would all agree with, then we have to be being saved every day, right? <laughs> and that's what he's saying here. That's what the gospel is doing here, okay? Now he's going to tell us what that gospel is. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. This is the gospel. One, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. How many of you agree with that statement? Two, that he was buried. How many of you agree with that statement? Three, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. How many of you agree with that? Okay, we've got a great place to begin with. We've got a, place of, we've got a great place of commonality, and that's the gospel, okay? And the thing that I want to emphasize here at the very beginning is, is that we have to keep the main thing as the main thing. The things that we're going to talk about have been, have been, have been divisive through Christ's church from the ages going, <laughs> the issues that we're going to talk about. But the one thing that, that keeps us all unified is the gospel, and I don't want that to be lost sight of in this, okay? And so I want to begin very basically, and some of you are going to be like, why are you doing this, PD? Because I think we have to understand, I want to define, I want to get our parameters clearly, clearly set here, and we have to begin with foundational principles, and the first foundational premise I want to begin with is, is that we want to establish what our authority is, okay? Give me the Sunday school answer. What is our authority, church? The Bible, okay? That you know that, but I want, to, I want to demonstrate that to us this morning, okay? So we're going to go to some places in Scripture. Go with me to Romans chapter 15 this morning. Romans chapter 15 this morning.
Romans 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in former days, as Paul's writing this, what is he talking about? What, what was written in former days? What did he have at this point? He had the Old Testament, right? Whatever was written in former days was written for our what? Our learning, our instruction, okay? Paul's emphasis is not on what was passed down by word of mouth. Paul's emphasis wasn't on, wasn't on other sources. What was Paul's emphasis on? What is it that Paul is reminding the church at Rome, he's reminding us, where is it that we're supposed to go for our instruction, church? The Scriptures, okay? The Scriptures. He goes on to say, it was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. That word endurance is, is an interesting one. How many of you find that going to the Word of God requires a little bit of labor at times? Requires labor, doesn't it? Quite honestly, many times we go to the Word of God, and when it requires labor, we get a little lazy and we quit, don't we? Or we get a little lazy and we let somebody else do the explaining for us. And I want to just remind all of us this morning... If you are the child of God here this morning, you have everything you need to be, quote-unquote, a theologian. Now, how many in this room have a seminary degree? One, two, three. There's a few of you. And, you're, and some of you are thinking, I don't have what I need to know the Word of God. Yes, you do. You have, first of all, the perfect Word of God, right? Right? Secondly, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. You have everything you need to be proficient in handling the Word of God, but you've got to put the effort into it. So God's Word is our ultimate authority. Let's go to another verse that I want to emphasize, 2 Timothy chapter 3. These are familiar ones, I know, but I think they need to be brought to bear right at the beginning here. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture. When God says all Scripture, how much of the Scripture does He mean, church? Even the genealogies? Even the tedious stuff in the book of Leviticus? Even the stuff that we don't understand in the book of Hebrews? Even the stuff that we wrestle with in Revelation and we all have different opinions about? Church, does He mean all of it? All Scripture is breathed out by God. Literally, it comes from His lips. It's profitable for teaching. How many of us would agree we need to be taught all the more? For reproof, which means pointing out what's wrong. How many of us would agree we need to have things pointed out, what's wrong in our life? For correction, not only pointing out what's wrong, but telling us how to make it right. God's good enough to not just point out what's wrong, but to tell us in His Word how to make it right. For correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, and have all the right answers. Is that what it says? I want to just point this out to you. I'm going to open up the Word of God. I'm going to share to you, with you the Word of God as best as I can, but do not think that I stand up here in front of you having all the answers. 
here's what I know. We're going to all get to heaven, and all of this is going to make complete sense, and at the end, we're going to be like, oh, I was desperately wrong in that area. Right? I was desperately wrong in that area, or I didn't even think about this. Let me make this statement. We're going to deal with a tough thing in Scripture. I kind of hinted at it in my email to you. And and I want to make this statement right at the beginning. We have to conform our thinking to God's Word. We can't take God's Word and conform it to our thinking. Let me say that again. We have to conform our thinking to God's Word. And you just agreed with me just a few minutes ago that at times God's Word is really hard to understand. Right? We got guys in this room who, who actually, they kind of intimidate me with all the Bible knowledge that they've been exposed to through seminary and whatever. But as I talk to these guys individually, one of the things that I love about them is their humble attitude of knowing this. Yeah, I've been trained in a lot of things. I know Greek and Hebrew really well, but here's the one thing I know, that God's Word is constantly teaching me and pointing out where I'm getting it wrong. We have to conform our thinking to God's Word, and we have to avoid the temptation that we all have in certain areas to take God's Word and conform it to our emotions and our ideas. Because when we do that, we're going to get ourselves into trouble. So let's begin with a second foundational premise. God's Word never contradicts itself. God's Word never contradicts itself. I want to give you some verses that that you need to consider when we come to this. Psalm 119, let's begin there. Psalm 119. God's Word never contradicts itself. Now, before we look at this verse, I want you to look up here. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever, though, in in your lifetime as a believer, read passages of Scripture and compared them with other Scripture, and it seems like the two don't line up? How many of you ever had that happen? Right. It happens, doesn't it? Okay? And and I don't say that to us to, to rock our faith. I say that to us to help us to think bigger, okay? To help us to think bigger. Psalm 119, verse 160. The sum of your word is truth. The totality of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Okay? Is there a part of your Bible here in in light of what the psalmist is saying? Is there a part of your Bible that that really we can say doesn't apply to today or this this part of the Bible really doesn't matter for now or this part of the Bible really, you know, no. What What is the psalmist saying? Every bit of it is equally inspired. Every bit of it matters today and every bit of it is true. Every bit of it. Go with me to Numbers chapter 23. Numbers chapter 23. The context of where we're going to go here in Numbers chapter 23 is just an interesting one. I wish we had time to unpack it, but I'm not going to. Remember the the Old Testament account of of Balaam and Balak? This this is where this, this this statement comes in. And so as Balaam, who really is not what I would call a righteous prophet at all, 
But as Balaam is prophesying, God uses him to prophesy some deep truth. Verse 19 of Numbers chapter 23. God is not man that he should lie. Okay? Just stop there for a second. Who is God? Are we God? No. God's truthful, and every one of us is what then, according to this, just this first phrase? We lie. Okay? All right? God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. How many of you changed your mind already this morning? You went to the closet, pulled one thing out, went back again a second time, a third time, and then you came out and your wife said, you're going to wear that? God doesn't change his mind. Okay? Keep going. God is not man that he should lie, or son of man that he should change his mind. He, has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? In other words... God doesn't take back his word because his word is perfect. So when God decrees, there's nothing wrong with what God decrees. And so everything that he has written in his word, does he need to say, oh, I didn't mean that, let's redo that? No. So God's word doesn't contradict itself. Go with me to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. Again, well-known passage of Scripture. I picked a lot of these on purpose because many of you know these, can remember these. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is what? It's perfect. It's complete. It's entire. Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Can you depend on what God says here in His Word? Yes, it's sure. It makes wise the simple. Okay? That's good news for all of us in this room that are simpletons, myself at the top of the list. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Question for you this morning, is God's word in its totality, in its entirety, is it true? Is it correct? Yes. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. Stop. Even the words that seemingly are in, in conflict with one another, even the words that, that one says it one way here, and I look at it over here, it seems to say it a different way. Are both those words true? Yes. Because every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. And this is, this is something I want to put in here right now based on this verse. When God's words don't seem to line up and take true and seem to be true with one another, where do we take our refuge? Do we take refuge in our understanding or what does the proverb tell us to do? To trust Him. This is where faith has to come into this. This is where faith has to come into this. Because if we're going to just base, our, base our, um, our faith in Christ and our, and, our whole, and our whole understanding of salvation just on our own limited understanding, then we have a pretty small view of what salvation is. 
Let me illustrate it this way. Would anyone like to take the next 40 minutes that we have in here and come up to the front and explain to us the intricacies and understanding of the Trinity? Anybody want to volunteer and do that? Why wouldn't you want to do that? Because I'm not volunteering to do it either. Why wouldn't we want to do that? Because, because our limited understanding cannot comprehend the gloriousness of the Trinity, can it? There are certain things we can understand about the Trinity, but the rest of it that we don't understand, we have to take it how, church? By faith, don't we? We have to take it by faith. Salvation is simple enough that a young child could understand. I was seven years old when I understood that I was a sinner, that, that there was nothing I could do to please God. But I want to tell you now, almost 50 years later, I still don't understand salvation completely, and I never will until I get to heaven. And I'm not afraid of that. Because I'm just a man, and God is glorious, and he is, His ways are not my ways. And so for me to be able to say that I understand completely what's in the mind of God is pure folly. John 17, 17. Remember that verse? Jesus talking, He says, Sanctify them with truth. And then He makes this powerful statement. Who is, what is truth? Your word, God, your word is truth. God's word is truth, and, and if it's totally truth from beginning to end, it cannot and does not contradict itself. So, you said, okay, PD, you've now taken 21 minutes. What's the issue? Let, let me give you the issue here. The issue, let me try to boil it down, is an antinomy. Now, you're not going to find the word antinomy in Scripture, but, but you will find a, antinomy. Antinomy is a contradiction between two apparently equally valid principles or between inferences correctly drawn from such principles. What we're dealing with here is an antinomy, and here's the antinomy. One, does God's Word clearly teach that man has responsibility in regard to his salvation? Church, does God's Word teach that? Yes, and we're going to explore that. God's Word clearly teaches that man has responsibility. But God's word also clearly teaches, and this is where the antinomy is, is that God and God alone is sovereign over his salvation. Now, a lot of people have written about this and talked about this. Here's a guy that, that everybody likes to quote no matter what side of this issue you're on. Is it okay if I quote a guy named C.H. Spurgeon? You okay if I quote Spurgeon here? This is what Spurgeon had to say about this. And, and I don't know, I've read a lot of Spurgeon's sermons. He's a pretty smart guy, okay? I don't agree with everything he said, but he's a pretty smart guy. And this is what he says, and this is a long quote. I'm glad this is being recorded because you can go back and listen to this. That God predestines and that man is responsible are two things that few can, or, are two things that few can see. They are believed to be inconsistent and contradictory but they are not. It is just the fault of our weak judgment. Two truths cannot be contradictory to each other. If then I find taught in one place that everything is foreordained, that is true. And if I find in another place that man is responsible for all his actions, that is true. And if I find in another place, excuse me, and it is my folly that leads me to imagine that two truths can ever contradict each other. 
these two truths I do not believe can ever be welded into one upon any human anvil. Do you catch what he's saying there? We're not going to be able to take these two truths in our mind and make them completely work. But they shall be one in eternity. They are two lines that are so nearly parallel that the mind that shall pursue them the farthest will never discover that they converge. But they do converge and they will meet somewhere in eternity close to the throne of God from where all truth does spring. And if Spurgeon were here, he would drop the mic and walk away. And go light up a cigar, probably. So, we need to unpack the scriptures, don't we? We need to unpack the scriptures here. And that's what we're going to do. But let's understand that how we interpret scriptures is very important here, okay? Before we begin that, though, I want to just point this out because I'm going to deal with the elephant in the room. You're waiting for me to say a couple words here, aren't you? Some of you are waiting for me to say a couple words here. And I'm going to say them, and this may be the only time I say them. Because what confuses this antinomy of man's responsibility on one side and God's, God's sovereignty over his salvation is we have gotten involved with men and we have, we have confused it with labels. Labels like reformed and non-reformed. Labels like Calvinism and Arminianism. There, I said it. All of you were dying for me to say it. Did you get that on tape? Okay. People have tried to pin me down on this. And honestly, in the last month, I've made some people really angry because I say I reject these labels. You want to put a label on me? You want to put a label on the four elders of this church and I speak I speak very authoritatively for them because I know exactly where they stand. You want to put a, put a label on us? Put the label of biblicist on us. What do you mean by a biblicist? Well, that, that we want to go to the Word of God, we want to see what the Word of God says, and we're going to stand on what the Word of God says. I'll just say this. Arminius wasn't as Arminian as he's been made out to be. And Calvin never set out to, to be the author, if you will, of this. It's wrong to label these terms this way. It's wrong to deal with this in this way. You can look at our church's doctrinal statement. You won't find those words anywhere in it. Praise God. Okay? So, we have to go to the Word of God, we have to search it diligently, and we have to submit to what it says, okay? But interpretation is very important. It's always important. You've heard me say this from the pulpit, you've heard others of our elders when they're teaching, you've heard Denny probably say this in his ABF, we take what we call a historical, literal, grammatical approach to Scripture. Now, you've heard us say that, let's define what that is, okay? Okay? Let me try to put it to you in a nutshell and then kind of take those terms one by one. By saying we take a historical, literal, grammatical interpretation of Scripture, we basically are saying this, that each passage of Scripture has one basic meaning rooted in historical truth related according to the principles of human language. In other words, you can't take a passage of Scripture and bend it and twist it to say about three different things. 
When God's Holy Spirit breathed that word out, when God, when God spoke that word out, he had one meaning in mind when he wrote it. And our job is to work hard to understand what he was doing. And here's the thing, we're not going to always get it right, but we have the Spirit within us, okay? By literal, we understand it to mean this, that it's understood in its literal, plain meaning. So when it says that, that, that Jesus turned water into wine, we don't have to get, <gasps> did he really turn it into wine? The Bible says wine, Okay? Historically and grammatically and contextually, historically means that we, that we have to understand the culture and background and the situation of its writing. Remember whenever um, uh, the disciples come to Jesus and they talk about the massacre at the temple and he says this to them, he's like, do you remember about the, the Tower of Siloam and when it fell? Did that really happen? Did the Tower of Siloam really fall? Yeah. And so we have to understand the historical background of things, okay? When we come to the scriptures, we, it, it's really helpful for us to understand the historical background and what's going on in the world, okay? Grammatical means we have to use rules of grammar. And I'm going to be honest with you. If I am weak in anywhere, it's, it's this. I'm weak in the Greek, which is why I'm glad I've got people all around me who are much stronger than me, and there's good resources, and, and I don't understand the rules as well as some of these other people do, and so I go to them, and I pick their brain, but there are certain rules that apply when it comes to Hebrew and Greek and how you understand it and how you, and how you parse it out. You can't just say, oh, this means this here and this means that there, whenever the same word is being used throughout the Scriptures. But it's also important contextually. It, it matters where you go and you land and if it's in a certain book and in a certain chapter and where that is and what's being said. Let's leave it to this. Let's, let's sum it all up with this when it comes to our interpretation. The Bible is its best interpreter. The Bible is its best interpreter. The Bible has to be our primary source. I've said that over and over again to us, but I want to, because one of the things that's happening here is, is that when we get into the Word and we find these confusing things and we find these conundrums, we're running to other resources and we're not staying in the Word of God. Just going to be honest with you. Over the past month, I have watched too many, too many bad YouTube videos of too many bad theologians that have been recommended to me. And they would have all been benefited better, and I would have been benefited better if I'd have just stuck with the Word of God. So, as we move forward now, I want to be clear with you. The convictions that I have, that I am teaching here, are from the Word of God. They're not from a man. They're not from a YouTube video. They're not from a book apart from this book right here. So let's talk about God's Word teaching man's responsibility and issuing a call to salvation. Let's go to Acts chapter 2. There's so many places we could begin. 
But let's go to Acts chapter 2. So Acts chapter 2, because we have to understand this in its context, right? This is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost, okay? This is Peter, the, the very humbled man who, who has failed his Lord, who has been restored back to ministry, and now on the day of Pentecost, remember the Holy Spirit has come, the rushing mighty wind, these, these apostles have been empowered, and Peter is going to do what Peter does. His personality still hasn't changed, right? Peter is going to go out and he is going to let both guns just empty on the crowd, right? And he's going to preach. And if you look at chapter 2 and verse 21, he, he's quoting the prophet Joel up into this point. And he says in verse 21, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How many of you agree with that verse? What's the responsibility on man to do according to that verse? Call on the name of the Lord, right? Call on the name of the Lord. You keep going through as he's preaching, and if you come down to verse 38, he says this to the people who are listening, and Peter said to them, repent. Who's repenting? People are repenting. The people who are there in the temple yard have to repent. What does it mean to repent? It means to have a complete change of mind, a complete change of thinking, a complete change of behavior about something that you once thought was good, you have to reject it. What Peter's talking about here is about our sinfulness. Repent. Who has to do it? Does it say God is going to make you repent? Who has to repent? Man has to repent, right? Okay. Let's go to Romans chapter 10. When we talk about the other side of this, we're going to look at Romans chapter 9. But in Romans chapter 10, as, as Paul is, is laying out this great apologetic of the, of, the, of the gospel here in Romans chapter 10, if you begin in Romans chapter 10 and verse 5, even in my ESV Bible, the heading says this, the message of salvation to all, okay? So verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. What is, what is, the, here, what is the responsibility of man when the gospel is proclaimed? What's the, what's the responsibility of man? He's, he's, please don't word, use the word accept, okay? That's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say accept. What's it say? Believe and confess, okay? Believe and confess. That's man's responsibility. Look at verse 13. How many is this available to, church? How many, how many is this available to? Everyone. Okay, is God's word true? Okay, is this available to everyone? Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay? Everyone. Okay? 
If we go to Acts chapter 3 and verse 19, it talks about people repenting. But let's go back to one that we used a couple, well, probably months ago in Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. This is, this is Abram here in his covenant with God, right? In verse 5, God brings Abram out, remember? And he, he brings him outside. He says, look to the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And what does it say in verse 6 that Abram did in response to that? He believed. He believed. Man has a responsibility to believe. Let's go to Matthew chapter 11. Let's see. Because if man has a responsibility, we would be consistent to, to think that maybe Jesus talked about this responsibility too. Let's go to Matthew chapter 11. So verse 27 Jesus is talking, he says this, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he says this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest in your souls. Okay, what is the command that Jesus gives to men? Come. Take, learn. Do you see those? It's a command, right? Jesus is commanding people, you come to me, you, you, you take my yoke, you learn of me. Implying that who's the responsibility on here? Okay. Let's go to the classic one in John chapter 3. John chapter 3. So as Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he, he's, giving him, he's giving him the plan of salvation in a way that, that you and I wouldn't do, but that Jesus does, Okay? And he says in verse 15 that whoever believes in him, referring back to verse 14 where it says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What is that a reference to, church? Moses lifting up the serpent, and, and now it's a reference of Jesus being lifted up. What, what, is that, what is Jesus talking about here? Is he talking about his crucifixion? Yes. And so he says, but whoever believes in him, this one who is crucified, the Son of Man, Jesus, may have eternal life. And then, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever, what? Believes. Okay? What's the, what is the responsibility of man when it comes to this offer of salvation from God? What is the responsibility of man then, church? To believe. Okay? He has to believe. Okay. I'm going to stop there for a second. 
Any questions on what we talked about, that God's word can't contradict itself, that, that God's word is our authority, that it clearly lays out that man has responsibility? Any questions on that? There were three men at the cross on that day. I'm just repeating you for the sake of the, the, of the audio. So best question is, there were three men that were there. There was Christ, there were two thieves on either side. And it says that one seemed to come to belief and that the other one did not. Well, I think Jesus' words give us the answer to that. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. There was no scripture given. So, so, so best point is, it's, it's, it's belief, it's a belief in the work of what, and literally that man was the first-hand account, he witnessed the work of Christ on the cross, did he not? Okay, it was belief, okay? Miranda. So Miranda's point is, that when she's reading in Mark, I'm saying this for the sake of the audio tape, that, that, that there, the, the, Jesus came, he called his disciples, and they just left everything and went, and without any kind of warning, right? And they just go. And so something had to be working there. Yes, you're leading us up to something here. You're leading us up to something. Thank you. That's a great transition. Okay? So, so I, wanna, I want us to be clear on this, though. We've made the case, biblically, that man is responsible to respond to what God does. Have we not? It's clear in the word, right? Man is responsible. So that's one side of the antinomy, right? That's one side of this antinomy, this, these two lines that don't seem to ever cross. Because the second, I don't think we have, most of us have a problem, and here's why. Because we're all men, we can understand the ability that, that we have to, to take truth and to t- either choose to believe it or not believe it, right? We all can relate to that. This is the more relatable side, okay? The second side of this antinomy is not nearly as relatable, Because what we've looked at so far, if you will, in the scriptures is our view of salvation from down here on earth as God gives us salvation. What we haven't looked at and what the scriptures do in a big way is give us a view of salvation from God's viewpoint. And that's what I want to do on this second side. And I'm just going to tell you right now, we will not get done with it. We'll be back here next week, okay? So... The second side of this antinomy is is that God's word clearly teaches that God is sovereign over salvation. Let's define what we mean by sovereign, because one of the things that I have learned in the past weeks, and and I've known this for a while, is, is that it's possible for us to have different understandings of what the word sovereign means. And is it important to know what the Bible definition of sovereign is? Yes, it is. So what do we mean by sovereign? It's the same basically as his lordship. When we read in the scriptures that Jesus is Lord, that's a term towards a sovereign, okay? 
It means that God is Lord over all, and as Lord, God exercises authority over all and control over all of His creation, and not only that, He is still active in His creation. Okay? That's the definition. I want you to see it in a number of verses here, okay? And I'm not just going to give you one or two verses. I want to give you a lot of verses because I don't want you to think that I'm plucking things out of Scripture here. Let's go to Psalm 115. Psalm 115. Psalm 115 in verse 3. Let's just get into it. These are two good verses to not read. Verse 1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. The emphasis here on the psalm then is what? Who receives all the glory? Okay? Who receives all the glory? God, right? Verse 2, why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens catch this phrase, he does all that he pleases. That right there in one verse defines the sovereignty of God. God pictured in the heavens as overall. That's what that picture is. He's in the heavens overall, okay? He does what he pleases. So let's stop and contemplate that before we look at other verses. If God does what he pleases, is there anything that happens on this earth that is a surprise to God? Are you convinced of that? God God does not treat us like a GPS. Now, I don't know about you, but GPSs can be very helpful, but they also can be very frustrating. Okay? If you know a shortcut that your GPS doesn't know and you have your GPS on, what is your GPS telling you to do? Turn around, go back. And it's like for the next five streets, turn around, go back, turn around, go back, turn around, go back. And when, whenever you don't turn around and go back, what does your GPS do? It recalibrates, doesn't it? God does not sit in heaven and when he sees man in his will make a choice, recalibrate his GPS. God's GPS is perfect. It's been perfect from eternity past. It doesn't need recalibrated, people. And to view God like a GPS is to have a limited understanding of who God is. I apologize. I was a little passionate there. Psalm 135. Psalm 135, verse 5, for I know that the Lord is great and that our God and that our Lord is above all gods. Is that a true statement? Then in light of that, verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth and the seas and all the deeps. Again, the psalmist is saying what? God is going to do what God is going to do. Okay? Let's go to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. This is Paul on Mars Hill. Okay? 
Get the picture in your mind. Paul is in Athens. He's on Mars Hill. Mars Hill, think of it this way, is a public place where there are all these different shrines, if you will, set up to all the various gods. The, the, Greeks, the Greeks prided themselves on their ability to be inclusive and understanding and, and all these things. It kind of sounds like modern day what? Western world, right? We're inclusive and we welcome, the, we welcome people into the marketplace of ideas, okay? So Paul goes, this is instructive to us, where does Paul go? Does he go away from them, set up a church apart from them? What's he do? He goes right into the marketplace of ideas, doesn't he? He's not afraid to go into the marketplace of ideas with them, and this is what he does. So let's just get the context. Verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, or Mars Hill, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. That's like classic understatement. All these gods all around, he's like, you people are very religious, aren't you? For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. In other words, hey, you, you even got an altar here to the unknown God. Let me tell you about the unknown God. This God, or the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and he has made from every man, every nation of mankind, to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. In other words, this unknown God, people of Athens, people of Johnstown, this unknown God, when he created, he set all the parameters. Now you think about that. Think about the course of your lifetime, some of the hardship that you've been through personally. Think about just the history of our country, some of the hardship we've been through. Did God set those parameters? Did God set those parameters? So you're telling me that God knew there was going to be an Adolf Hitler who was going to do all that stuff. Right? God knew you were going to lose that job. God knew you were going to get that cancer. God knew all that stuff. Did he? Yes. This is a hard truth. That's why I bring this stuff up. This is a hard truth. Because we're coming at it from, from our man-centered view and not looking at it from a God-centered view. Okay, let's go to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, still talking about the sovereignty of God and what that means. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, this is God, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. In other words, it doesn't even matter what our emotion is in all of this. God has determined who he's going to have mercy on and who he's not going to have mercy on, right? Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up. Now think about this. Think about this as a Jew living under the hardship of Pharaoh. You're making, you're making bricks to build Pharaoh's cities, to build Pharaoh's monuments to himself. And, and, and you, are being, you are being literally forced 
to, to make these bricks out of mud. You're being forced to, your quotas keep going up. You are being tortured if you can't keep up. You have no time to take care of your family. You can barely get along and live and eat. It's a hard existence. How many of you agree with me on that? You say, where can God be in the middle of that? If I was there, I would be asking myself, where are you, God, in the middle of this? Well, here's where God is. For this very purpose, says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Is it possible that even with something like the Holocaust, God's name can be proclaimed through all the earth? Yeah. 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 Verse 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Did the Bible really say that, church? Does it really say that? That doesn't seem to line up with whosoever will, does it? Can you think of other illustrations in the Scripture where that's true? know a guy, Nebuchadnezzar? What did God do with Nebuchadnezzar when Nebuchadnezzar got really puffed up? He turned him into an animal. Literally. Grazing in front of the palace, right? Who did that to him? God did that to him. God's sovereign. God, God has control of all, his, all of his creation. Let's go to another verse in Romans. Go to Romans chapter 11. This is one you know really well, but I want to point it out to you. Romans 11, verse 36, talking about God being sovereign. Let's, go, let's start in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. What's Paul's confession here? He's so big, he's so deep, he is so much above me that I cannot understand him. Isn't that what Paul's saying here? For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And catch this, for from him, and through him, and to him are how many things, church? All things. And that seems like a good place to stop at 1025. If everything is from him, and it comes through him, and it goes back to him, then is he sovereign overall? Is he? Yeah. Questions so far on the sovereignty of God? Miranda, Miranda, quickly. Yes. <laughs> Mm -hmm. You're struggling with the antinomy. Welcome to the club. Welcome to the club. Can I say this to you? I'll give you a short answer, but we're going we're gonna to dig into this answer as we go forward, because the answer is how do we bridge those two, those two lines that don't seemingly cross? Let me give you the short answer, Miranda. You can't do it, just like you can't understand the Trinity apart from faith, you can't understand these two statements unless you have faith can't do it. Because in the human mind, they're not going to make sense. 
They're not going to make sense, but they're both in the Word of God. Have we not seen that? It's where we have to exercise faith. Faith is, faith is that thing that, that makes those two things that seem seemingly untrue work. It's a good question. We're going we're gonna to wrestle with it. I'm, I know I'm kind of leaving you hanging until next week, but that's what we have to do. Unless you just don't want me to preach in the next service, we can just keep rolling right through this. And, and then we'd probably be here till like 4 o'clock and we still won't have it settled. And you guys will be hungry and hangry with me and all that good stuff. Any other questions? Okay. Let's have a word of prayer. I really appreciate you guys making the effort to be here. I really do. Um, it encourages my heart that you want, to, you want to wrestle with this truth along with us, okay? Rather than doing it in the dark and in the shadows, let's wrestle with this together, right? So, Father, we thank you for your word, and we confess to you that it's really hard for us to, to put these two truths side by side and seemingly make them make sense in our minds. But we rest in the fact that in your mind they make complete sense, that, that they don't confuse you at all, we acknowledge you as the all-powerful one who, who is sovereign over all. We acknowledge you as the one who is, who is the, the, the master over all these things. And we, we humbly submit ourselves to you and your word. In Jesus' name, amen.